So if you've been paying attention to the little emails that I send out regarding the titles for these messages, you notice that they are all starting with seeing in. This this morning is seeing in Jesus' burial the promise of resurrection. And just so you know, that's not like the inspired title for sermons. Um, after we're done with certainly this section, I don't know that we'll have that. Um, but in these portions of where John is going through and describing the death and burial and then the resurrection of Jesus, he means for us to be seeing in each of these events the glory of Christ in a specific and wonderful way and the, and the sovereignty of God as he's overruling in what looks like a failure and what looks like defeat and accomplishing our salvation. And so we have, we have followed Jesus now um, from his arrest in the garden. We remember where we've been. Uh, to his trial before Annas, the Jewish high priest, to his trial before Pilate, um, and then his crucifixion, then his death, and then, most recently, what happened to Jesus' body. I mean, John even goes into the details of this is what happened after Jesus died while his body was still hanging there on the cross, and this is how we see in that the unfolding of our salvation. His legs were not broken. His side was pierced. And so we've looked at that the last couple of weeks. This morning, John tells us what happened to the body of Jesus after he was taken down from the cross. Now, it's interesting. We could kind of tend to be like, well, Jesus isn't there, right? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is not there. He's in paradise. What does it really matter what's happening now to the body of Jesus? after he's died, when he's not there. I just want to tell you, that's a very uh, 21st century kind of question to ask. And uh, so, which means bad in this case. But it's where we are, and let's see if we can kind of come along the way in the right question to ask. So, verse 38 of chapter 19, John says, Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. I don't know if when you read that verse, there's something really strange going on in that verse. We're meant to see it. Okay, so Matthew tells us that Joseph was a rich man, um, that he had become a disciple of Jesus. And that's what he says, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So Matthew just tells us disciple. Luke tells us he was a member of the council, so he's, he's up, up there in rank. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a good and righteous man, Luke tells us. He had not consented to the rest of his colleagues and their plans to put Jesus to death. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God. So only John. John tells us this interesting little tidbit that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. When Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might think that Joseph has got everything together. You read in John, you find out he doesn't, or he didn't. He was afraid. So in chapter 7, John has made a big deal out of being afraid, about this, of this fear of the Jews, about caring what men think of, of us. And so in chapter 7, he tells us the crowds were all debating about Jesus, and no one was speaking openly about him, certainly not saying anything good about him openly, for fear of the Jews. Chapter 9, remember the, parent, the blind man that Jesus healed? So the, uh, the parents of this blind man kept putting off the questions of the religious leaders. Go ask him. Go ask our son. He's old enough. He can answer for himself. Why? Because they feared the Jews. And chapter 20, we haven't got there yet, but in the next chapter, the grieving disciples are going to be hiding out behind closed doors because why? They're afraid of the Jews. And then we read in chapter 12. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus 
But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would, re- that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Certainly there's, there's something right there for us to ask ourselves is whose praise do we live for? What is the, what is the fundamental driving motive of your life? Is it for what other people are going to think of you or is it for what God thinks of us and, and what his verdict will be in the end? But that's not ultimately John's point in, in saying these things. <clears throat> when John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, what are we meant to do with that? Are we meant to be like, okay, wow, Joseph is really a bad guy, right? He loves the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So he's in that camp, right? And, and that's not what he's saying. While these rulers who believed but wouldn't confess, they, they believe, but they're never called disciples. John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all say Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. And they say that in a positive way. These rulers rejected Jesus because not that they think he's a fraud. They think he's for real. It's just at the end of the day, even though they think Jesus is for real, they still value the approval of men and not the approval of God. So it's interesting. Again, there's a lesson for us. We might, we might believe all the truths of the gospel in our heads, and yet in our hearts we still value not the approval of God, who we believe, but the approval of men. And we can do that so decisively that we're not even in the kingdom, though we believe all the facts. So God calls us to live, even as Romans talks about in Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, living for the approval of God. And that's something that carries with us certainly every day of our lives, right? Every moment that we live. But their, their fundamental determining love was for the praise of men. And we can't say the same thing of Joseph. Joseph did indeed want the praise and the glory of God from, from his heart. But, but he was torn. So you've got this man who he's failed. You, you can't make it, you can't say that he feared the Jews and say in any way that was a good thing. That was a bad thing. He was unwilling to confess Christ openly because of what it might mean for his standing among the Jewish leadership and even his position on the Sanhedrin. Now, I, I, I'm trying to get into Joseph's mind and say maybe he had good motives. You know how sometimes we have good motives in our sinfulness? This is a strange thing. So maybe Joseph had good motives. Maybe he couldn't see yet how far gone his colleagues were in the council. Maybe he was like, I don't are they really that bad up until this point? Maybe too, Joseph is thinking, how should I have to make a choice between being a spiritual leader of God's people and being a disciple of the Messiah? And Joseph didn't see that coming. And so he hasn't yet confessed Christ openly because he still wants to maintain his role as a spiritual leader of God's people. So maybe there's something good going on there, even though his fear of the Jews was clearly misguided. His secrecy was clearly a failing. He's a good and righteous man. He's a disciple waiting for the kingdom of God. He wouldn't go along with their plans to put Jesus to death. And yet he won't follow Jesus openly because he's afraid of the Jews and what they might say and do. Until, until now. This is the amazing thing. Okay, because by coming to Pilate, okay, and asking permission to take away the body of Jesus, to give Jesus an honorable burial, Joseph is risking the displeasure not only of Pilate, not only of the Jews, but also of Pilate. So here's, here's the situation. If you were crucified for sedition, like plotting against the Roman Empire. Do you think the Romans would permit you to be buried honorably? No. And in fact, 
crucified victims who were guilty of charged with sedition were not even allowed any burial at all. None. And yet Joseph goes to the Roman governor who still has his career to think about. We might say, well, Pilate, Pilate hates the Jews right now. He doesn't really care. He knows they just did this out of jealousy. So what's the big deal? But Pilate has his job to think about. And when he gives permission for the honorable burial of a man sentenced to death for sedition, it's, it's very unexpected. Joseph's Jewish colleagues have already asked that the bodies be taken away, and they intended that they be buried in the common grave for criminals. Certainly, they would never have ever entertained the idea of giving an honorable burial to a man they put to death for blasphemy. So the Romans would never allow a burial for a man accused of sedition. The Jews would never have honorably buried someone they accused of blasphemy. And yet Joseph, Joseph, mind you, Joseph undermines his whole fellow council members, all of his fellow council members, by requesting permission to give Jesus an honorable burial. Now my question for you is this, why? What? What is the point of risking everything now? Jesus is already dead, Joseph. That's just his body. Apparently, it's because of the death of Jesus and the circumstances surrounding his death, try to get yourself into Joseph's world, that he has suddenly become convinced of the true glory of Jesus. Now, can, can he explain this to himself? Does Joseph get it all yet? No. Could, does he have some idea? I think Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. No, he has not a clue about that. But rather than convince him that Jesus was a pretender after all, I mean, all, these, all this time, Jesus has never declared himself. Joseph has never declared himself. He's never announced, I'm a follower of Jesus. Now Jesus is dead. And rather than convince him Jesus is a fraud, it's the death of Jesus that finally brings Joseph out of his hiding. It's the death of Jesus that finally convinces him it's more important for me to be known as one who was a disciple of Jesus than it is to maintain my standing among my fellow Jews or even to avoid the displeasure of the Roman governor. I want to ask you, humanly speaking, how do you make sense of that? What could be more unexpected than that? And almost equally surprising, as we've already seen, is that Pilate even gives Nicodemus permission. When John told us that the Jews went and asked, can we take the body of Jesus? Uh, He never tells us Pilate gave them permission. It's just assumed they did, that he did. But when Joseph asks permission to take away the body of Jesus, look at John is very careful to say explicitly, and Pilate granted permission. You can almost hear in Joseph's tone of uh, John, I got a lot of J's here, in John's tone of voice, that he's, he's saying, did you hear that? Pilate granted permission. How did that happen? That Joseph should ask for this permission, and that Pilate should grant this permission, is a sign, and it's pointing you. It's pointing all of us to the overruling providence of God and to the unfolding, the further unfolding of our salvation. But no sooner did we learn that Joseph came and took away the body of Jesus than we're introduced to another man who was there with him. Verse 39, And Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night. Did John have to say that? No. We already know, Nicodemus. We remember chapter 3. But John specifies, who first came to Jesus by night, now comes again to Jesus, to his body bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 litras. I say I, I'm, I'm doing it literally because I, I think we need to see the 100. There's that sense of a fullness, of a huge number. 
But in our measurements, it was 70 to 75 pounds of spices. Now, we know Nicodemus from chapter 3. He's another ruler of the Jews, probably a colleague of Nicodemus on the Sanhedrin. Uh, Here, John identifies him as he had come to Jesus by night. So you see, why does he do that? Nicodemus is like Joseph. They're like in the same boat. So Nicodemus was a good and righteous man. We know that. Because in chapter 7, when the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of being an imposter, what does Nicodemus say to them? Does our law judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing? So that's kind of Nicodemus trying to, trying to defend Jesus a little without getting everyone too angry with him. Nicodemus believed that Jesus had come from God as a teacher. His colleagues did not. He was waiting, just like Joseph was, for the kingdom of God. We know that because of what Jesus first said to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. Joseph didn't understand. And he could not accept the things Jesus was saying. So here we've got another man who's torn. He's, he's mixed inside. On the one hand, he hides. He comes to Jesus by night. On the other hand, he is waiting for the kingdom. He was not yet a disciple of Jesus. And if maybe at some point along the way, and I believe he did, he became a disciple of Jesus, he was almost certainly still a secret one for fear of the Jews. Because if he had announced himself a disciple of Jesus, he would have been kicked off the council by now. So, brothers and sisters, we see that this Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus secretly by night, in your handout, now, now he comes to Jesus publicly, in the light of day, bringing a mixture of spices weighing 75 pounds for the burial of Jesus' dead body. And once again, I want to ask you, and if you would ask, why? Why now, Nicodemus? You've been hiding all this time. Now Jesus is dead. Why risk it all now? And once again, somehow it is in the death of Jesus that Nicodemus has become all the more convinced of the true glory of Jesus. I think Jesus must have Jesus' words to Nicodemus must have been etched in Nicodemus's mind from that first meeting they had. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus: "No one has ascended into heaven, but the one who descended from out of heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him." have eternal life. And now the one who spoke those words to him is hanging, lifted up, dead on the cross. Did Nicodemus understand yet? Did he get it? Could he explain what's happening? I don't don't think so. Did he know the resurrection was coming? No, he did not. But brothers and sisters, here's the mystery. Rather than convince him that Jesus is a pretender and a fraud, it's the death of Jesus that finally convinces Nicodemus it is more important for him to be known as one who was a disciple of Jesus than it is to maintain his standing among his fellow Jews. Think about it like this. Where are all the rest of Jesus' disciples going? Even as the declared disciples of Jesus, like Peter and James and John, even as they're all going into hiding, it is these two secret disciples, the secret disciples who are now, for the first time ever, declaring themselves openly. And how do they declare themselves for the first time as disciples of Jesus? By coming forth to care for his dead body. Humanly speaking, Can anything be more unexpected than that? So they took the body of Jesus, verse 40, 
They bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now we know, if you think about it, it would have been no easy or pleasant task to take a broken and bloodied body down from a cross. That's not a one-man job. And then to transport that body even a short distance to a tomb. So, almost certainly, Joseph brought servants along who would have helped with this task. Likewise, we should not imagine Nicodemus carrying 75 pounds of spices all by himself. Either he brought a horse or some other pack animal, or else he brought servants with him as well, carrying the spices. What I want us to see is this is not some secret operation. Joseph and Nicodemus are not kind of under the cover of night doing this thing. It's not nighttime yet, and it's not just the two of them. This is a coordinated effort carried out in plain sight of all who are passing by. The the sun is still up, and it's as powerful a way as possible. You know, you want to see, we, we declare ourselves disciples through baptism, in a sense, right? And, and not that I'm comparing that, but if, if, you want, if you want the most obvious way possible to declare yourself a disciple of Jesus, do what Joseph and Nicodemus are doing right now. And again, they've not done so until now. The fact that they do it now, when Jesus has already died, is perhaps the most humanly unexpected thing that could have ever happened. And John means for us to see that because he emphasizes Nicodemus came to him by night. Joseph was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. John tells us that that binding a body in linen wrappings with the spices in between the wrappings and the, and the body, that was a burial custom of the Jews, but we know for sure that 100 litros of mixed spices was not customary. That would be the mark of highest honor, reserved for people of high rank and position, and impossible anyway, even if you wanted to do that, for the average Jew. You, you, could, not, you could not even remotely fathom affording that it would have been unprecedented even practically unimaginable for that amount of spice to be lavished on a victim of crucifixion okay victims of crucifixion again normally left on the cross to be eaten by the scavenging birds or if not taken down and cast into the burial common burial grave for criminals that this amount of spices, that any spices, much less 100 litros, is lavished on a victim of crucifixion. Uh, The shock is something I don't know we can fathom. If the spices are unprecedented, so is the tomb. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Now, when the first day of the week comes, which is next week, when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus in the garden, she's going to think that he's the gardener, which tells us that this is the garden of a very wealthy man, a man who can afford to keep a gardener. We assume the tomb within the garden belongs to Joseph, perhaps, because he's the one who asked permission to bury Jesus. We don't have to just assume that if we know Matthew, because Matthew tells us that this tomb was Joseph's own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. (laughs) Now, how do you hew a tomb out from the rock, right? Especially in that day. So we know that Joseph, all by himself, did not go and chisel out this, this cave in the rock. He had all his servants working to prepare this tomb, which would have been a family tomb. It wasn't just big enough for him to go in. It was a family tomb. So this tomb, then, 
is the tomb of a very wealthy man, situated in the garden of a very wealthy man, a tomb that no average Jew could ever have conceived of affording. Would have been unprecedented, unimaginable, for the body of a crucified man to be given such an, in your handout, an honorable burial. A man who was put to death on charges of Roman sedition and Jewish blasphemy. Add to this that the two men who came forward to provide the burial, to care for the body of Jesus, has only now found the courage to declare themselves openly. Add to this that Pilate grants his permission, and everything about the scene is wholly unexpected. Why do I emphasize these things, right? Because John wants us to see it. And he wants us to see it so that by faith, what we see now is not just a random set of circumstances. Oh, wow, look. Randomly that happened. Randomly this happened. What we begin to see is another sign pointing you, pointing me to the overruling providence of God and ultimately to the unfolding of your salvation. That John means for us to see this is more obvious when we see that he emphasizes this was a new tomb a tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Uh, that's obviously there for a reason. And, and at some level, a lot of times, we don't really care. right? We don't care what happens to our bodies after we die because we're not there, right? Why is the Bible making such a huge deal out of this? Reminds us of the donkey's colt that was brought to Jesus for his entry into Jerusalem. It was a colt on which no one had ever sat. The point in both cases is that they've been set apart and reserved by God. God, as it were, reserved that tomb. God reserved that cult for the uses of his son. Joseph may have hewn out this tomb for himself and his family, but in fact, it's God who prepared this tomb for Jesus. And it's God who prepared and reserved and set apart Nicodemus and Joseph for the need of this moment. It's in that light we go on to read in verse 42. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, that's not to say that being laid in the tomb was just the result of circumstance. Well, it was Friday afternoon. Sabbath was coming at sundown. We've got to hurry up and and get this taken care of. There's the closest tomb. (laughs) So what John is saying is that, look, God scheduled all the timing so that he would make sure his son was placed in that tomb by these men with this honor. So what does it all mean? Why does God himself see to it that the body of Jesus is provided with such, I won't even just say an honorable burial, but an extravagant burial? Perhaps the first thing we need to understand And we're going to take a little, you see, this is a biblical theology of burial. Well, this is going to help us understand what's going on here. Because living in the 21st century, as we do, uh, we have some obstacles to overcome. We need to understand that our bodies are essential to our humanity. They're not an afterthought. So think about it like this. God did not... Uh, create Adam as a spirit or a soul. He didn't say, let's create, let's create a man, and he made a spirit. And then he said, now let's clothe that spirit in a body. No, God prepared the body, and then he breathed into that body the breath of life. 
In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, look how it says it. Then Yahweh God formed man, and what did he form man of? Dust. Now, I'm not saying our souls are dust. But look how the, the scriptures talk. Formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his, that lifeless form, He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. You cannot read that verse and suppose somehow that your body is something secondary or incidental to what it means to be a human being. Now today, the reason we kind of struggle with this is because we've fallen prey to what what is a, a dualistic teaching of of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. So we have this Gnosticism, this Gnostic heresy, which was rooted itself in this pagan Greek philosophy of Plato. And you might not care about them, but just so you know, where we we have been impacted by Plato without without realizing it in the most case. We've been impacted by Plato and then this Gnostic heresy. No, we're not Gnostics. We're not Platonists. But we have absorbed some of those ideas, especially the idea, and here's the problem, of a body, spirit, right, material, immaterial, dualism. So we've got body body and material, spirit and immaterial, where the body, as a result of us separating this dualistic idea, the body is incidental at best. And at worst, it's something evil to be escaped from. But it's something incidental at best. It's merely a shell that can be discarded without any negative effect on me being a true human being. A full human being. My body is incidental. But that makes utter nonsense of the biblical doctrine of creation, brothers and sisters. And of the biblical doctrine of Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And of the doctrine of redemption. So the eternal word. Why did the eternal word become flesh? Because that was necessary to becoming fully what? Human. I don't know that we fully grasp that. The eternal word became flesh. Why? So that he might redeem you as a whole person. Body and soul. And so, in your handout, this is very important. It is because our bodies are essential to our true and full humanity. They're not essential to our self-consciousness. When we're dead, we're going to be conscious in the presence of God, right? But we're still dead. As human beings. Our bodies are essential. To our true and full humanity. And it's because of that. That we can see. How without the resurrection of the body. There is no redemption. Apart from the resurrection of my body. There is no salvation. Now the Old Testament saints. They're smarter than we give them credit for. Not smarter. Wiser. In this case. No, they could not benefit from the light of the incarnation. We, we can see that. Jesus, the word became flesh. But they had the light of creation. They had the example, remember, of Enoch and Elijah, who did not die but were taken bodily up into heaven. They had the example of some who were raised up from the dead bodily. And add to this, they didn't have to deal with Plato or Gnostics. And now we can understand how they could believe Here's a miracle, brothers and sisters. They believed in the resurrection of the body before they could understand how that resurrection would be possible. Today, we live with the resurrection of Jesus, and yet somehow the body has become something incidental and secondary. And so the resurrection is no longer what we ultimately look forward to. In fact, somehow we've at times replaced the resurrection with simply dying and going to be with Jesus. But the scriptures hold before us 
ultimately the hope of the resurrection of the body. It's only in light of these things that we can understand and appreciate the Old Testament emphasis on the treatment of the body after death. You see where this is going? Specifically on the burial of the body. Because for the Old Testament saint, the body wasn't just an empty shell of a person who'd gone away. I'm not saying it's not an empty shell. The person is not there. But the body was more than that. The body remained essential to that person's true and full humanity. Now, there's a mystery there. I'm not saying that when, you were, when our souls are in the presence of God, we're some other thing, not human. But, but our true and full humanity, our bodies are essential to that. Even if for a time, that person is now separated from his body. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament saints somehow thought, if we don't bury the body, they won't rise from the dead. Right? Or if we don't preserve the body just right and carefully, the resurrection won't, won't happen. That's not, they weren't thinking that. They knew decomposition. We, we focus on decomposition and well, let's just make, let's make it happen, right? Or let's just, let's just, we don't have to worry about these things. But they knew about that. For you are dust, God said to Adam, and to dust you shall return. They knew about deaths by burning. They knew that if someone died in a fire, God still could raise them from the dead. If someone was drowned, dismembered. The point was this. It was the general principle of how a person's body should be treated after death in light of, the, in light of that body being essential to his humanity. And so also for the righteous in the light of the hope of resurrection. Maybe now you can help, that'll help you to see why when you would hang a dead body from a tree, what was that a sign of? Well, that person was cursed of God. Well, what does their body have to do with them, right? They're gone. It's just their body. But when you hang the body on the tree, it was a sign that person was cursed of God. This helps us to understand the significance of the burning of a body. After a person was put to death for capital offenses, the only time you burned bodies in Israel was if you put them to death for a sin they committed. And so just like the hanging of a body after death, so if you burned a body after death, it signified that person was cursed of God. In the Old Testament, another sign of God's curse and judgment upon his people was that they would have no one to bury their dead bodies, but would instead be left exposed to the elements, the heat and the frost and the scavenging birds and beasts. In Jeremiah, this is called a donkey's burial. Jeremiah 36, Therefore thus says Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, And his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. You see, it matters. It mattered what happened to the dead body and some of these, especially when the word of the Lord was spoken about it. But the Israelites took what happened to the dead body, how they treated it seriously. Jeremiah 14. The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And there will be no one to bury them. Neither them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour out their own evil on them. So if this donkey's burial, donkey's burial thrown out in the streets, hung, burned, if that's a sign of being cursed by God, though not obviously in every situation, then what would you say that a proper and honorable burial was often a sign of? It was a sign of God's favor. It was a sign of God's love for that person, though there is only 
his body. In fact, the wickedness of three, there were three kings of Judah who were wicked but not horrible. And so it says that they buried them in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. You see, to them, that was a huge deal. They didn't get to be buried in the tombs of the kings. That was big. To us, we struggle to appreciate how big that is. Normally, if you were assassinated, you would not be granted an honorable burial. After all, you were just assassinated. But when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, was assassinated, listen, they buried him. And why did they bury him? For they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat who sought Yahweh with all his heart. That's why they buried him. Jehoiada was a priest. He was not a king. And yet we're told that he was buried in the city of David among the kings. And why did they bury him? Why did they give him that special honor, even though he wasn't a king? Because he had done what is good in Israel and had done good to God and his house. We especially see this contrast between the donkey's burial as a sign of God's curse and the proper and honorable burial as a sign of God's favor in 1 Kings 14. God says, Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat. For Yahweh has spoken it. But you, he's talking to the wife of Jeroboam, you arise and go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, the child, the son of Jeroboam, will die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave. Why? Because in him, something good was found toward Yahweh, the God of Israel. You seeing how it might help to have been an Old Testament Jew in coming to the account of the burial of Jesus. Perhaps the most powerful Old Testament example of the burial of the body as a sign of God's love and God's favor is seen in Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of Yahweh. And he, Yahweh, buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Why does God bother to bury the body of Moses if Moses himself is now with God? Why does God bother to bury the body of Moses if no one else will ever, ever, ever know even where Moses is buried? The answer is because Moses was God's righteous servant. That's why. Because the body of Moses was essential to Moses' true humanity. And therefore, God's burial of Moses' body, essential to Moses' humanity, was the sign of his intention to one day raise Moses up from the dead. In like manner, throughout your Old Testament, a proper burial was for the believer, when possible. And again, there was nothing magical about a proper burial. It was just a way of them expressing biblical truth and realities. A proper burial was the recognition that the body is essential to our humanity as God's creation. And therefore, it was a powerful expression of faith that one day the dead would be raised to life. You see what's going on in burial? Oh, when we understand this, now we come back to John. And what do we see? 
What do we see in this most unlikely, most unexpected burial of Jesus? Let's put it together again. A man charged with blasphemy, crucified on charges of sedition, now buried, not in a common grave for criminals, but in the garden tomb of a rich man at lavish expense. Not only that, but the two men who come forward to provide this burial. I mean, where are you going to look to find anyone to provide this burial? You look to those closest to Jesus, and they're all hiding out behind locked doors in an upper room. Where are you going to look to find these men? The two men who come forward to provide it, to care for the body of Jesus, have only now, only today, found the courage to declare themselves openly as disciples of Jesus. Pilate himself, the Roman governor, granting permission And the tomb itself being a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. What do we see in these things? We see in God's provision for the honorable burial of the body of Jesus. The continued unfolding of my salvation. And you are free to say, of my salvation. And we see by faith that this Jesus who was crucified, he is the Holy One of God, in whom there is no sin. The prophet Isaiah wrote of the coming suffering servant. His grave was assigned with wicked men. And we know, looking back, that that was the case by virtue of his crucifixion. Those who were crucified were counted wicked men and buried accordingly. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. And why was he with a rich man in his death? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. See, when God, when God buries his son, when he sees to it that his son is given this lavish, extravagant, honorable burial, it is God's testimony to us that this man hung up on the tree is in fact innocent. Not just innocent, but the holy and righteous one who dies not for his own sin, but for the sin of People like we are. In the burial of Jesus' body, God testifies to his love and favor for his righteous servant, his beloved son. And so the burial of Jesus also testifies, watch this now, to the fact that the faith and hope expressed in all the burials of all the righteous dead since the beginning of time is about to be fulfilled in Jesus. And I, I have tons of cross-references in your handout, and there was tons more we could have looked at. Burial is such a big deal in the Old Testament. You think of all those righteous saints of old who buried, who buried their loved ones, who buried their friends, all looking forward in hope. And now in the burial of Jesus, we see the sign that the faith and hope that they expressed in all those burials is about to be fulfilled in Jesus himself. Because we see in the burial of Jesus' body the promise and the guarantee that he will rise from the dead. Nicodemus couldn't see it. Joseph couldn't. The rest of the disciples couldn't. But today we do. And soon they will. Therefore, we see, even in the burial of our own bodies, and in the burial of all who have died in Christ, the promise that because these bodies are essential to our true and full humanity, and because Jesus came to redeem us as whole persons, body and soul, we will one day be raised up out of the grave, to live with him. And if that's so, 
And we also see in the burial of the body. And I, I really, this is really beautiful, I think. We see in the burial of the body the sign that God will also keep and guard our souls in his own presence and the presence of Jesus until the day of resurrection. You see, if God cared so much for the body of Moses that he himself buried it, if God was so concerned for the honorable burial of Jesus, of his body, how can we not see in that the sign that for as long as our souls are separated from our bodies, he will keep and watch over our souls in his own presence until the day of resurrection. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, we can even say this before we've got to the resurrection. We see it already in the burial. Now the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we give you thanks for the glories of our Savior, for every, for every, for every moment that you planned and purposed, for how you, how, how you orchestrated every event and detail encompassing even the hearts uh, of, of men and, and the details of, of the day and the time of day. Lord, we thank you for, for reserving Joseph and Nicodemus for this hour. And that at just this time, you brought them out of their secrecy, out of their fear. And as you worked that work in their hearts, you used them to accomplish this great, this great deed in the unfolding of your redemptive plan. We thank you that today as we see Jesus laid in the tomb. We see in this that he is indeed the Holy One of God. The one in whom there is no sin. Who was just crucified and died. Not for any guilt of his own. But for the guilt that we all bear. Let us now look to Christ, not lying in the tomb, but as we will see next Sunday, living, raised up from the dead as the first fruits of our own resurrection who have believed in him. We give you praise, Lord, for your miraculous work of redemption. And again, I pray, that each one of us here would know the joy of that salvation in our own hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.